You're listening to the Better Left Podcast. Today we're bringing you an interview with Peter Khalil, who is a brand new Congress-endorsed congressional candidate for Washington's 3rd Congressional District. That's southwestern Washington, including areas like Vancouver. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed making it. The following podcast is not suitable for all space babies. Oh, space babies from Mars? From space. Okay, that's why we need Space Force to protect us from space babies and protect Elon Musk's car that's currently floating around the Earth. Um, (laughs) Welcome to the Better Lift Podcast. Uh, Myself and Jay Smith, who is normally producing, is now uh, my interview co-host. Once again, left out out of the dungeon and the editing dungeon. Released from your editing dungeon. We let him out occasionally for snacks and i'm i'm excited to be here because we got some awesome guests in the laboratory yes so we've got uh peter cleel and peter's campaign manager please feel free to introduce yourselves hey i'm peter i'm running for the united states house of representatives in the third district of washington as a populist democrat and uh, this is my campaign manager i'm nicolette heredis and i am here to get peter elected Okay, you. Let's just get right into it. Populist Democrat. Haven't heard that term in a while. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that because I've heard populist, and sometimes it's a good term. Sometimes it's not. So what what does that mean to you, Peter? I believe that the policies of our country should originate from the people, and I think that's the basic definition of populism. So, um, you know, we uh, as representatives should be the vessels for the people's will. Um, we do live in a republic, so we do have the 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 authority as representatives to make uh, certain choices. But ultimately, I. Th- think that representatives should be directly answerable to the people that they represent. And so I ran um, with, I think that there will be, I know that you are very familiar with the organization Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats. I ran as one of their, as one of their original candidates as a democratic socialist. This is just for, for our audience. We have a lot of, of um, more metropolitan listeners who are in cities and stuff. Is there a reason you use the term populist Democrat instead of socialist Democrat? And does it have anything to do with your very rural third, third district and the people that are there? Is it, does it have anything to do with voters or is it just a personal choice or personal beliefs or... I think the labels liberal, progressive, conservative, uh, you know, reactionary, all of these things have their own baggage. But I think populist is a very simple word because the root of it is the people. And I think that everybody, whether you're Republican, Democrat or otherwise, wants a government of the people. Awesome. I think that's a really, really good way to look at it. And having grown up as a conservative Republican, believe it or not, uh, I know I, I voted for Ron Paul. Boo. Oh, come <laughs> <on>. <laughs> we have a Ron Paul voter in here, everybody. It a was, real live one. Ma'am, that was in a revolution. Okay. Can I touch your hand? <laughs> <laughs> so we got a couple background questions asked. We like to get a little to know a little bit about our candidates and the people we sit down to interview before we get into the meat and potatoes, even though we kind of jumped right into it today. Um, jumped right to the potatoes. Right to them. And you never do that. I want to back up a little bit. So. Talk to us a little bit about your background, Peter. So what got you into politics? Like what's your, what's your, what's your background? Like who are you? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start with my parents because the, my story, the reason that I'm running is directly related to their story. Um, and I'll tell you why I'm running. My, my reason is very simple. I'm running because I'm the legacy of two immigrants who gave me everything, made my story possible, and the only country in the world that could have made my story possible, the United States. And I'll explain that. My dad came here in 1969, uh, and he came here from Egypt. He's a Coptic Christian. And I don't know if you know about Coptic Christians. They're a religious minority over there. 
and they get treated uh, sort of how African-Americans got treated in the Jim Crow South. Uh, so, you know, from time to time, their churches would blow up. My, my father's childhood church is gone. Uh, people uh, in their vicinity would disappear for uh, reasons unknown. Um, and they'd be harassed in public. Uh, so my dad came here uh, for the reason that every immigrant comes here, I believe, for a better life. And he came here basically with nothing. He came in 69. So he went to this bar, first bar he'd ever been to, right? And the first thing that he ever saw, first television broadcast, was Neil Armstrong landing on the moon on July 20th. Can you imagine that? You've just come to this country that's put someone on the moon. Ooh. And for him, that solidified it. He was going to be a patriot or you know whatever you would think of as a patriot. He loved this country. He said, if they could do this in 69, what would happen in 79, 89, 99, and so on? So my mom came here in 74 after him. Um, I don't know how they met. They don't talk uh, very much about their life in Egypt, very much about specifics. Um, and there's a reason for that. And I think it's because their life was really difficult. Um, and there are a lot of bad memories. But she came here in 74. And she was inspired by what she saw here too, because shortly after she came here, Richard Nixon resigned. Why would she be inspired by that? Well, she was inspired by that because she had come to a country where a president could be held accountable by the people, resign, and then there would be no bloody revolution. So that inspired her too. So growing up, I grew up with a very sense, a very healthy sense of loving this country. Um, when my parents bought a house, um, and I'll you know give you a little more background and and forgive me if I'm going long, but I I want to tell this story. Um, my parents uh, were the first in their families to go to college. Uh, my mom studied uh, at Cairo University, studied engineering, ended up being the f one of the first women at RCA uh, in New Jersey in the 70s under the newly enacted Affirmative Action Program. My dad studied chemistry at Cairo University, or at Alexandria University, I'm sorry. And education got them out of that country. So for me, they knew that education would propel me up. So when they bought a house, they started borrowing against that house to send me to some of the best private schools on the East Coast. And that's what they thought. Well, I'm gonna send, we're going to send our kids to the best schools, give them the best education that money can buy, even if it means that we have to mortgage ourselves. Um, fast forward a little bit, fifth grade, my dad gives me this book. It's called The Buck Stops Here. It's a book about the presidents. And on each page is a picture of a president a drawing of that president and a drawing of that president's accomplishments and then a rhyme about that president. And the book was meant to teach you how to memorize the presidents in order. And he told me, I want you to memorize the presidents of the United States. And I said, why? That's so lame, dad. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's the point? And he goes, look, in our, in, in our family, we have people, we can be scientists, right? We can be uh, doctors, pharmacists, engineers. All of our words come out with an accent. Your words do not. You were born here. I will always feel like a guest here. People will believe in you to change this country, but you can't do that unless you know the history of this country. So I want you to memorize the presidents. And I did. And, you know, I said, thanks for the book at the time, you know, um, but I, have, I still have that book. Um, fast forward a bit more. Um, so I go to Columbia University uh, and... Um, I had a little bit of experience uh, interning for my congressman my first year of college and actually my last year of high school um, in the 12th district of New Jersey. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd always known I was going to do something in public service. Um, so I go, to, I go to Columbia, I study political science, and I study uh, international relations. Well, that's what Barack Obama studied at the very same school. 
And um, for me, he's a hero. And I, I say he's a hero because he made it possible for a man with the middle name Hussein and the last name Khalil to be credible in national politics. Study at Columbia. I go on to Stanford Law School and um, I meet my wife there. So what I didn't tell you is I grew up in a little town called Highbridge, New Jersey, 3,500 people when I was born. It still has about 3,500 people in it. It's in the middle of Trump agricultural country in New Jersey, tomatoes and corn. Um, and uh, so I met my wife, who is uh, from Richfield, Washington, of all places, in Palo Alto, California, at the first day uh, at Stanford Law. Um, and I graduated from, from Stanford, and my dad, always the wise one, tells me, um, what do you think the probability is of a man like me who grew up in a village in southern Egypt with no electricity, no running water, uh, got parasites from swimming in the Nile, parasites called schistosomiasis. It's horrible, right? And I, kept, I asked him, hey, why the heck did you keep swimming in the Nile? And he looks at me and he goes, because it's hot in Egypt. <laughs> that's a good enough reason <laughs> to keep getting infection. Uh, Peter, I, that's an incredible story. And I, I love hearing stories about when we get people who actually get a chance to live the American dream. And it sounds like your parents really got a chance to do that. And growing up, I really got a chance to, well, I say got a chance to, but like I, I had the story of freedom and the American dream and those kind of things sold to me, right? Because I was a conservative and those are the ideals that really stood out to me. And so, uh, you're running for Congress, and I'm going to guess a big part of that is because you don't think those ideals are currently being manifest, that people don't get a chance at. Why do you think that is? I don't think those ideals are being manifest. And, and, and just let me, let me just give you the quick conclusion. Uh, and okay, it'll, sorry, it'll, sorry. Do, it'll dovetail. Rude. Uh, no, Jay. no, not at all. <laughs> Jay. <laughs> so, you know, he said, what do you think the probability is of a guy like me having a lawyer in the United States? And that really proves it, right? That proves the United States made my story possible. It was the only country on earth that could have made that story possible. The reason I'm running is to give people the power to make their own stories possible because it's not happening right now. The reason I'm running is to restore the idea that our government exists to give people the opportunity to have a better life, a good life. It's not happening right now. You're absolutely right. That is the whole reason that I'm running. Um, and it's not happening because of so many reasons, systemic income inequality, racism, uh, money in politics, money outside of politics, the military industrial complex, uh, environmental catastrophe, making a story possible. I, to me, that means that we acknowledge that healthcare is a right. That means that we acknowledge that our world is on fire and we get carbon neutral within a decade. We figure out how to implement the, 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 the Green New Deal. And to me, that means we get money out of politics so that we can be assured that our representatives are voting for things that we want, not things that corporations want. And so when I ran my campaign, one of the things that I tried to express to people is I tried to express to people um, these things that we think are compartmentalized. Like we think that uh, climate change is different than than poverty. We think that poverty is different than um, than racism or, or police brutality. We think police brutality is different than immigration. And we really made a conscious effort to be like these things are not compartmentalized. You're just sold this 
beautiful lie that's well constructed that they're all separate issues that don't interweave. And I think we've really we've reached critical mass, especially in 2020, where people are actually paying a lot more attention. Have you seen that people are less uh, in your experience just running the campaign that you've been running? Are people more or less likely to compartmentalize these things away from each other? Or are they starting to actually realize they coalesce into one universal issue, which is corporate ownership of our political system? I, I do think that we are still in the mindset that we're compartmentalizing, at least in my district. Um, these issues are talked about as discrete issues and not intersectional issues like what you're saying, right? So the most, you know, racism is exacerbated by the fact that um, our most vulnerable populations and our minority populations are most affected by climate change, right? People need those connections to be made. And it's very hard when you only have a few minutes with people to um, relay the subtlety of these issues, right? So um, it's unfortunate, but we're trying to say Look, these are these are the pillars of the platform, but these pillars are all connected, right? Uh, you know, to an extent, healthcare and public health. Uh, you know, they, the gun control is part of that, right? Environment is part of that, of course. I try to make those connections whenever I can, as quickly as I can, because I need to convey the idea that we are running out of time on these things. But it's still very difficult because people like to think in categories. It's easy. Um, and we're still working on how to how to make people think in that unitary way that you're talking about. Yeah, and it's it's really a difficult one. But uh, Nicolette, I want to ask you a question because <laughs> the often undervalued and underrepresented and underspoken of very very difficult, complicated job of being a campaign manager um, is a lot. So, what fired you up? What got you to to Peter's campaign? What keeps you coming back? Other than the luxurious paycheck that I'm sure <laughs> no. you receive. No, other than his, his monologuing <laughs> that uh, we get him to start doing. No, um, no I'm, I'm here because I, I live that. I live the difficulties of the things that he's talking about. I live in poverty. I live in, you know, with, with crushing student loan debt and having to pay for a, a health care premium that is like, bankrupting my family. I live in a one bedroom with my three, now three-year-old son. He just turned three on Ooh. the fifth. Um, and and I, I come back every day because this populism is the answer where we all get to have a say in what we want. And when, when you really get down to it and you ask people, we, we really want the same things. We're just told how we want it. And by by utilizing Medicare for all or the Green New Deal or money in politics, it's a broad enough umbrella that and because those policies aren't already set in stone through Congress, you you get to invite people who you wouldn't normally agree with on things to be a part of that solution and give them agency in that as well. So if you guys are okay with it, we're getting super serious. And whenever we get super serious, we like to break it up just a little bit. <laughs> Never serious. Yeah, we like, well, I'm like 60% serious, I guess. We like to have fun. So I have some really important questions for you, okay? okay. This, is, this is one I'm just going to throw at you. So recently, the Cimarron neighborhood, stop me if you already know this, because this is really big news. Cimarron? The Cim yeah, Cimarron. How do you spell I, don't, it? I don't know. I'm not from Vancouver. Uh, it looks like Cimarron. Anyway. Spell it in Canadian. C A. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Recently, the Cimarron neighborhood in Vancouver hired a hawk master to hunt down wild rabbits because there was too many of them in their HOA community. <laughs> Do you advocate extending the same policy to the rest of Vancouver and maybe even nationwide? Vancouver, we... Washington, or Vancouver? I was going to ask, which Vancouver is this? This is Washington. Upper Vancouver or lower yeah. Vancouver? <laughs> and I thought you guys knew your area. 
my gosh, I am I am humbled by you. Cancel um, the interview. Yeah, we're walking out. Um, wow. Uh, well, on the serious side, I never advocate like you know killing the rat to eat the cat to kill the owl. That I mean, it's just it's just that's ridiculous. Um, but. But I don't want to I don't want to take an absolutist position on it because I was not aware of this issue at all. <laughs> Spoken this big news in your community. <laughs> Spoken like a true mediator refuses to take a position. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Typical politicians. Um, okay. All right. Here's, a, here's another one. Uh, so you live in the Vancouver area, right? Yes. Favorite restaurant. Come on. Taiwat Kitchen. Oh, Nicolette mm. had a fast answer. I don't know. Peter. I'm Maybe. between Vinny's Pizza and Thai Orchid. I think oh, those are. Oh, no. Oh. Thai Walk Kitchen is way better than Thai Orchid. Thai Orchid's fine. We, they we, have some good booze. Are we really? Wow. <laughs> Thai Walk Kitchen does not serve alcohol. Are we really going to pit wow. these restaurants against each other? I don't know. I think maybe whoever donates most could be your, your <laughs> biggest, Let's settle your the favorite. score. Yeah. <laughs> we got a gift for someone. <laughs> Highest <laughs> donation in the next quarter gets treated to dinner at both. There we go. <laughs> or takeout from both. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's usually how it's settled in political discussion, isn't it? Right? I mean. You, just you donate money and then get stuff, right? Yeah. I would like to say that uh, all the words here are coming from the other side of the table. <laughs> committee to elect Peter Khalil does not endorse. <laughs> it's good to put good to put these things out there. I, I think so too. Um, so, oh no, dive in. Okay, so let's get into the let's get into some nitty gritties. All right, we talked about some hawks. You refuse to take a position. <laughs> Smart. I haven't forgotten. Uh, we talked about some restaurants. The whole, the whole time you won't forget. But let's talk about issues that actually matter to the Vancouver area and kind of the third district as a whole. It's a really large district. It's way bigger yeah. than Vancouver, Jay. Yeah, it's uh, it, we, we, the district extends all the way from Pacific County at, at the coast uh, up to uh, the northern points, Lewis County, a sliver of Thurston County, and then all the way east to Skamania County in the Columbia River Gorge. It's one of the largest uh, congressional districts in this country. I think one of the top five. So obviously there's going to be a lot of rural areas in this district and historically it's gone red, yep. right? Historically it's been there and currently represented by Jamie Herrera Butler, whom we don't like, but that's okay. Oh, Jamie uh, Herrera Butler, <laughs> right? Yeah, actually it's I kind of spelled it. that way. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so you have this interesting issue where you have to reach out to these rural people, right? And having grown up in a rural community, uh, that can be difficult sometimes, right? You're probably going to get labeled things like socialist. Um, how do you intend to overcome this kind of thing? So we haven't been labeled socialist because the way that we're messaging is not label-based. Uh, it is basic issue-based. Um, we are trying to answer the question, what will you do to make my life better? Now, let's remember that a lot of these rural communities voted Democrat just two generations ago until somehow our party forgot about how to talk to people in rural areas. Um, example, um, there are lots of pockets of my district that, um, uh, you know, where if you live there, it takes hours to get to a hospital. Well, we talk about, let's build rural hospitals. And what has Jamie done to get us money for rural hospitals? Well, nothing. Having access to basic healthcare is not a partisan issue. It is, a, it is, a, it is an across the aisle survival issue. And these counties have not recovered from the recession. Another reason why they haven't recovered from the recession there is a lack of broadband internet in the area, and that is very serious. It creates systemic income inequality uh, because if you can't access the global marketplace, there's no incentives for companies to invest where you are. It's very difficult for you to start a small business. It's very difficult to do basic things like get a job, apply for a job. 
We need to talk about these basic infrastructure projects that will bring jobs to the area because jobs are a number one, the number one thing that people talk about other than healthcare up in these rural areas is jobs. They will bring good union jobs because when we build infrastructure, we create jobs and we bring money to the area. I'm totally on board with you. And actually, I think that's one of the things that we need to do now, again, is we'll look at revitalizing our rural uh, areas the way that we had under the last real new deal, right? The Right, 80 and, years ago. And we built highways, we gave them electricity, and that was all part of the project. Um, but there's a second issue, right? And this is one that kind of sits really uh, close to me, and I know close to Sarah's heart, is that you have to deal with talent in the area, right? And right now in rural communities, the talent is poached by the military, right? If you want to have a dream in a rural environment, you have to join the military. You have to go fight a war for oil, uh, I know I'm putting my opinion there, but you have to go fight a war for oil. And so supporting the military becomes a very big deal in this region because everybody has family in it as a result. So what is your stance on this kind of stuff? Like, what is your position as a federal congressman? That's a thing you got to worry about, right? Well, first of all, um, I'm always in favor of people serving the country. But when you say it's the only option, it's untenable, it's unacceptable, right? You should be able to stay in your own area. And when you talk about talents, we need to uh, message in such a way that we explain, look, we already have the talents here and even some of the infrastructure to do things that can be done locally, like, for example, cultivating hemp, like, for example, building rural hospitals, like broadband, like modernizing the electrical grid. We Once we give people other options by building that infrastructure and by, by funding the building of that infrastructure, I think people will naturally you know, not think that they only have one option, but we have to give them those options. Um, I don't think it's a matter of, you know, the, the, the type of talent that's there. It's just that we're not utilizing ourselves, uh, in a way that makes it possible for us to thrive. You know, again, oh, once we untether, like for example, Medicare for all, when we untether, uh, healthcare from jobs, well, maybe you won't join the military to get healthcare anymore because you'll have healthcare. Maybe you'll try to start your own business selling A, B, or C. Um, maybe you will take a little bit of a risk. We're a pioneering country. Well, for us to be able to pioneer, we have to have the freedom to do it, right? That's what it is. That's why a lot of people think the military is their only option because we don't give people the freedom, the economic freedom and the the social freedom to do things like that. And we don't fund projects in these areas that could help. I absolutely agree. This is actually something that I was really passionate about, too, because I've been anti-war activist my entire life. Um, it's it, it has just been something that's very near and dear to my heart. I haven't stopped. I'm still yelling about Syria, which we'll talk about on a different podcast. Um, but I one of the things I tried to explain to people, and this is where I really think you can bring together like a bunch of different issues. So the military industrial complex is currently propping up the the oil industry, which we all know about. And we all know it's propping up the, the private weapons contractors. We all know that. But when it's your only option and your talent is sucked into that only option void you're kind of just thrown into the military and that's all you can do and that's all you've got and your talent gets taken away from these areas that you grew up and you invested in emotionally but when we have an education system that's fully funded to do things like supporting trades and supporting apprenticeships and supporting actually getting involved in other options beyond just going 
to college and just going into the military, those become your two binary options, go to college or go to the military. But if we have a, a country that invests in in education and teaches people how to do trades and gives them other opportunities, gives them that third path through that through that system, and then does something like starts a federal jobs guarantee program using the Green New Deal, and then you fight climate change, you create jobs under the federal jobs guarantee, uh, you fight the military industrial complex, you provide health care for people, the single payer universal health care, so everybody has it, and no one's tethered to one particular company. This is an area where that stuff really inter- intersects along with education. This is why they're not compartmentalized issues. Um, is So I know I talk a lot about the federal jobs guarantee. It was something that I really was like hyped up about on my campaign. Um, uh, have you guys talked about it at all? Or is that a thing, a concept you've been able to explain to people in your area and like help them really understand if it is something you guys support? Well, it is something that we support, definitely. Um, what we've been talking about in terms of, a well, when we talk about the Green New Deal, we mostly talk about the idea that because there's a preconception that people are going to be um, shunted to only clean energy jobs, like everyone's going to work on a windmill. So what we've been basically emphasizing is that, no, there's infrastructure here. There's like there are warehouses that are fallow in our northern counties that can be used in the supply chain. Again, broadband infrastructure, um, and also building more schools. Um, and because we have to fully fund education under McCleary, and I don't, actually don't think that's being accomplished. Nope. Um, <laughs> uh, but we don't necessarily message on the, the, the jobs guarantee because it, we've never really been asked about it. And I think what we need to do is say, okay, so the Green New Deal includes these things, um, but we need to we're sort of trying to untether things like the jobs guarantee from the heading of Green New Deal because the Green New Deal comes with a lot of that that phrase scares people, regardless of the fact that I support the Green New Deal fully and we should turn it into a bundle of feasible policies. Going out and saying jobs guarantee has people in rural areas saying, well, wait a minute, you know, I've worked all my life. I've I've tried and tried and tried and I, I cannot achieve full employment. It, it is it is difficult. How are you just going to guarantee jobs out of the wind? So what we're focusing on is trying to say, here's what's here. Here's how we can build it up. And this will turn into full employment. By so, using the wind, but, you guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> by using the wind. And that's that's definitely one of the ways. Sure. Yeah. Um, but people, people have pre- misconceptions about these header issues federal jobs guarantee green new deal like so we're just trying to get the idea across that we we want to keep people in their communities but thriving where they already are so so it's hard you know it's hard to come in with it's car, it's hard to be deductive right to go from big principles to small we're trying to go from small to big we're trying to be inductive so so we so we don't my short answer to that is we don't talk about it like that we talk about it like here's the potential we have in this community this community that you may not recognize anymore because it's changed so much this community that has lost its major industries we talk about revival from the ground up so i know in just to shift gears real quick i know in in your district the third 
in Washington also had a former Justice Democrat and brand new Congress candidate, Dorothy Gasquet, who's a good friend of mine. Um, she ran her campaign as strong as she could. We know she had a lot of interdealings with the 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 party down there, Democratic Party down in southern Washington. Um, have you guys what have you what lessons have you taken away from her campaign that have been really beneficial to you guys? And are you guys facing any kind of similar opposition so far? Have you noticed anything any kind of opposition like how she talked? talked about i know uh the van thing came up for you you're welcome i was a little bit of fire starter <laughs> for that um so have you other than like uh i i know you had a little bit of ac- they gave you access eventually they relented because you're like by the way i'm an attorney and they're like oh never mind suddenly you have access it's so weird um so no all comment. you have to do all you have to do to get access is remind them that you're an attorney everybody um so other than like the basic regular washington doesn't want to give challengers van um, have you seen anything or have there been lessons that you've taken away from the, the way that they did things or anything you've been able to to kind of like any leftovers you've been able to pull into your campaign that have been helpful for you? So Dorothy paved the way, but she was treated very unfairly. And she pointed out those moments where she was treated very unfairly. And I think her calling those things out made it easier for me, uh, for us to run in that district. Um, so for me, she is a trailblazer. Um we are we are a different style campaign. We are we are taking a slightly different tact uh, because we have a little bit more momentum in the progressive movement since the last cycle, uh, and Bernie Sanders is running for president again. So um, that's one thing in terms of opposition. Yes, there are you know uh, I guess you'd call them the moderator centrist people uh, down in in uh, the the political elite circles of our district um, kind of opposing us. Uh, we really haven't been the target of any specific, you know, uh, actions or anything like that. But, you know, there are always people out there with an axe to grind and they're trying to grind that axe. Um, but we're focused on just moving forward and um, trying to run a positive campaign in the sense that we want people to be inspired. We lost that district by 16,000 votes last cycle. And that was unacceptable in a blue wave. That was a large margin. And it was because we didn't inspire people to vote for Democrats. Well, that time is over. I think it's really interesting, right? So uh, we just had some really big announcements as far as FEC fundraising recently. Uh, for example, uh, Rebecca Parsons, she's running um, the 10th. Sorry, I get really excited. Um, she's Yeah, she's not running in the 10th. She's running the 6th against Derek Kilmer. I always confuse these two districts. I know. You think that Denny Heck and Derek Kilmer are the same person. <laughs> because they're both old white men. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Derek's not old. He's like middle-aged. He's like your age. Stop it. Um, so the question, 50. stop it. So the question that I want to ask you is, um, you mentioned kind of like the progressive wave and how it's moved forward. So what's been kind of your reception? Have you been able to get interviews scheduled? Have you been able, been getting positive feedback from that? Or has it just been kind of like we had? I mean, and I'm the, just ga- gonna... the gamut of regular progressive grassroots media or like. So we have gotten a lot of uh, exposure in the local papers. Um, are the reporters who cover politics are being incredibly fair and um, giving us a lot of coverage, equal coverage to our opponents. And we are very appreciative of that. And in addition to, you know, like the TYT and, and all of that, um, the progressive media, um, we are, uh, there's nowhere that we go that we are greeted with uh, anger or, or resentment, we are getting an excellent reception and it makes us even all the more confident that we're gonna win this vote by vote. That makes me really happy to hear, to be honest with you, because part of uh, the campaign that Sarah ran 
was about trying to forge a new vision for the Democratic Party. We we got accused all the time of not being Democrats. Like, oh, you're not a Democrat. You haven't been there. But uh, Sarah, you're a lifelong Democrat, I believe. Yeah, they called me not a real Democrat. And I'm like, that's right. I'm a fake Democrat. I've been a hologram the whole time. Did you pull out your Democrat card? Your card-carrying Democrat? Yeah, <laughs> I pulled it out. You know, honestly, I made jokes about that. And then my buddy Mark Whitmire, who is a Republican from Tennessee, they literally do have cards. Do they really? Yes. He pulls out his wallet. He's like, I'm a literal card carrying Republican and I'm like oh my god <laughs> but I, I love it though because it's good because we're starting to see a little more unity I think even in the presidential debates where we're starting to see more of a unified vision even if we do get accused of being socialists I mean that's exactly correct like one of my favorite tales so far is regardless of what you think of everyone when Bernie Sanders had his surgery uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign without fanfare without it was other people that told the news this it wasn't her campaign they sent his whole staff dinner because he they were all waiting in the hospital and she sent all of them dinner and I thought that was it's very different and like he's defended her and like she's defended him and Tulsi's defended other candidates and uh, Julian Castro's defended other other candidates like they're actually like the ones that are super moderate or like like basically Democrats and sheep or like Republicans and Democrat clothing are being called out Joe Biden um, and Pete Buttigieg. But the ones that are actually progressive and actually have progressive ideals and policies are like they're sticking together. I think we've hit a, t- a tipping point in how toxic uh, our politics have become. People are just sick of it. And I think when you're sick of something, you tend to, to want to reach out for, for anything positive, any glimmer of hope. And I think that's why we have a little bit more unity here. And not to say that it's not going to be difficult for us. It's going to be hard. Um, we, you know, we don't have the party apparatus raising money from us for us. It is incredibly difficult to raise money down there, uh, especially because we are in a rural district. Um, you know, we need those donations and they're going to be, you know, small fives and tens. That's how we're going to do this. Um, it's we are living in, in an environment now where uh, Everybody knows that something needs to be done. And I think 2020 is that pivotal target, is that bullseye for everybody. So I think there's going to be a groundswell of unity for the first time in a long time. And even when we meet people who don't, who who know that you're running and know that you are, a, you're running as a Democrat, they're still really excited to talk to you, I've noticed, and and excited for the idea that, hey, there's somebody here who who does want something different. And that that I, I've seen how that kind of lights some people up when when they do meet you. We just listen. That's really <laughs> what we do. We just listen. And we listen in a way that doesn't, um, where, where I don't come back with, well, here's what's best for you. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, try to, we, we try to be there for people in the community. And there's so many stories that we could tell, and I wouldn't have the, we don't have the time to tell them, but so many of these little moments of connection that make it clear we're all together in this. Okay, so let's talk about some things that are best for them because I do like to tell them what's good for them. (laughs) Uh, So you held a Medicare for All rally recently. Um, You support Medicare for All? I do, Um, and I do because I have known so many people who have had to, including myself, um, who've had to choose between health care and food, health care and housing, health care and bankruptcy. I have a chronic eye illness, and I've been on the other side of that unpayable bill. And I know how hard it is and how worried you get when your job that you don't like uh, is pivotal to you because it is your source of health care. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to start my own business because um, I have a wonderful wife who's in the same field that I am um, and can help me and support me. Um, but not everybody's so lucky. 
And, uh, you know, healthcare is a right in the industrialized world. So we're in the industrialized world. Uh, in fact, you know how people say that uh, politics is the art of the possible, right? That's Otto von Bismarck, right? A German in the 1800s. You know what else Otto von Bismarck did? He started Germany's first social health insurance program in 1883. <laughs> so if it was the art of the possible in 1883 in Germany, it's the art of the possible in 2020, 2019 in the United States of America. So the, but there are other candidates in your race, right? And so I'm not going to name Carolyn Long's name, but I do want to point out that some of we them- We don't name drop. Some of them have identified as uh, wanting a more of an incremental approach. Now, what you're so talking about doesn't sound like incrementalism. You're talking about, let's go for it. Like you believe in the dream. So would you describe yourself as an incrementalist? Do you think- No, the time for incrementalism is over. We've been doing incremental since 2010. The ACA is incrementalism and it's not working. People are still dying. There are 56,000 people in my district alone with no health care. 522,000 in Washington state. These are potential deaths. So no, I, I'm not an incrementalist. And I'm glad we moved on to uh, Carolyn Long a little bit. So there's Jamie Hara Butler, who I'm, I think we're all kind of confident will make it through her primary because that's the nature of things and the nature of that's the the gift of being the incumbent. Um, so you versus Carolyn Long is are there really the two biggest names in that race? I think you guys are the only other two in that race. Is that right? Or is uh, there another person? There's another guy named Rudy Atencio, but I have uh, very few people have met him. He's sort of okay. a man of mystery, and maybe maybe right. I'm expanding his sense of mystery by mentioning Ooh, him. Maybe. Well, people, you're just being <laughs> honest. You're even like you could have just said like, no, we're the only real candidates. We're like, no, there's another one. No, and he needs to be heard. Yeah, and I agree with you. I'll, I'll just say I did read an article about him very recently, um, as in today, and. Apparently, he's doing most of his campaigning at the LGBTQ bar scene in Vancouver. In Portland. So, in Portland. Yeah. Oh, good. Which yeah. isn't in our district. Yeah. But for people who don't you know, know, Vancouver, Washington and Portland, Oregon are literally across a bridge from each other. So there's like a real tight overlap between people who live in Vancouver and people who live in Portland. Um, so you versus Karen Long. Uh, if we just pretend that that's what we're looking at for right now, because she's like she was the nominee last time for the district, or not the nominee, but she was the the secondary front runner in our amazing two top two primary system. Um, why you over Carolyn Long? Why me? Mm -hmm. Because I believe in these fundamental moral imperatives, like healthcare is a right, like uh, the Green New Deal. She has come out in favor of the Kalama methanol plant, which would. Uh, be the largest plant of its kind uh, uh, that would be sourced by with fracked gas. I mean, it encourages fracking. Uh, fracked gas is the input for for that. Um, so she's not for the environment. Um, the other thing is the diagnosis of issues between me and her, um, the diagnosis of why we're not getting any movement on the issues. Um, we fundamentally differ there. So what she's been saying is, you know, civility is the key and bipartisanship. Well, look, I have a lot of Republican friends. We talk across the aisle till we're blue in the face. It's not bipartisanship. The problem is money. The people at the top make it impossible for everybody else to make their will known to their representatives, for their representatives to vote in the way that they want. So, um, Unless you recognize that, I don't think you're a viable Democratic candidate. I don't think you're uh, somebody who um, is looking out for the best interests of the people of your district. And finally, money in politics. Um, we don't take corporate PAC money. Um, I know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm unclear on uh, what Long's position is on that. And um, because I know what it was in the last cycle, uh, and I, I won't dwell on it. 
but we are a grassroots, we are a true grassroots and not AstroTurf campaign. Um, we are walking our talk. Finally, we are turning our campaign sort of into a um, community service organization. We're going to be out there. You know, we talk a good game about making people's lives better and making their stories possible, but we can do that before we get to D.C. We can do that by being involved in every single community service project that we can out there. Our shirts will be out there whenever there's work to be done. We, are, This is how we differ, not just from my fellow Democrat, but also from our incumbent. And I think this is also how we differ for from the majority of politicians in this country. So this is, it's a little bit, the reason I keep breaking down like, you're in a rural district and I'm in a city district is because there, I think our, a lot of our listeners being city dwellers, um, we kind of lose sight of the significance of these, of these um, rural districts and we kind of lose sight of them altogether, which I think is a lot of the reason why we've lost in these districts is because the Democratic Party really forgot how to talk to rural folk. We forgot that we used to be rural folk. We used to be the party of the rural folk. Um, so when we talk about things like policy, we see uh, some Democrats like Carolyn Long who sit in that center line and are like, oh, no, I'm for fracked gas because they think that that's what the right want to hear. They think that that's what these Trump voters want to hear is like, oh, look, she's a Democrat, but she's for fracking. That's great. Um, but so my experience personally is that's not correct at all. I think we as a party are making a lot of mistakes by thinking that the way we get people is we be more moderate and we we take we make more exceptions in our policies to like we see Nancy Pelosi supporting like a, an anti-abortion Democrat. We think that's the way to get the right on board. But in your experience running with a lot of folks who are on the right, is is that something that resonates with them when they think of Carolyn Long and her support for something like fracked gas? Are they like, oh, that's my Democrat? Or are they like, no, that's still not, she's still wrong. And what do you think the disconnect is between the Democrats and these and these folks that were, that swung the district for Herrera Butler? So Republicans don't want to vote for a watered down Republican. They have a Republican option. They have a conservative option if they're for fracking. Um, but the ultimate situation is when you educate people about the issues and you show that the Kalama methanol plant is going to produce something like 15 jobs, people realize, wow, they're not trying to answer that question for me. The question that I brought up at the very beginning, what are you going to do to make my life better? That's the question they want answered because people are too busy with survival to pay attention to party politics and strategies and where you fall on the political spectrum. They don't have time for this. They wanna know when they're gonna have a meal, when they're gonna be able to get a job with a living wage, when they're gonna be able to breathe clean air and drink clean water, when they're gonna be able to go to the hospital without panicking about whether something is covered. The reason we lose as Democrats is because we make the, the critical mistake of thinking that our voters are stupid, and they're not. Our voters are savvy. Our rural voters are savvy. Our farmers know how to use technology. Our farmers understand that climate change is changing their lot in life. They understand that their way of life is in danger. So what we need to do is engage with people on that level and show them what we can do with what we have and what we can make when we finally answer that fundamental question, how will you make my life better? So I, I, I'm with you 100%. You and I are on the same page as far as what it takes to speak to conservative voters because uh, I saw a family in Arizona, which is historically red. And interestingly, in the city that I come from, 
You have pockets of blue, and that all surrounds the university, and everything around that is red. Uh, for, cl- for clarification, Jay's from Tucson, Arizona, which is in the southeasterly region of Tucson, like center, south center, southeast. Yeah, it's in the southeast area of Arizona. Um, so you have to talk to them about terms of freedom and how that looks like and those kind of things. Um, but one of the things that we care a lot about on this podcast is actually lived experience and what that means and where it went. So uh, we heard some interesting information. I want to give you a chance to kind of respond back to it. So one of the things that we understood is, so you go to Stanford, you went to Columbia, and then after graduation, you took a job on Wall Street following the 2008 crash. Um, and I think as many people would do following graduation from college. Can you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, what did that look like? Because you, d- you yeah. don't do that now, obviously. Yeah. So what was that? What was that experience like? So I took that job right before the crash. <laughs> the crash happened while I was there. And the reason I took that job and the reason that my wife took a job like that is because we had between us $360,000 in student loans. This was kind of the only option at, at the time. Um, so we go there. Uh, my wife worked on the Madoff case. I represented banks uh, in CDO inquiries, um, the mortgage-backed securities and stuff like that. And um, what we saw generally and what you saw in the news was horrifying. And it was, it was stomach-turning, right? The people at the top, they, don't, they didn't care about um, the main streets being decimated, people losing their houses. Um, you know, uh, we cared about um, protecting millions and millions of dollars and protecting executives, right? We saw these banks uh, generally, and you saw it in the news as well, and I'm not singling anybody out. Uh, we saw them betting for and against the same risky investments. We saw them anti uh, violating anti-money laundering regulations left and right, and we saw them contributing to politics. We saw them engineering the bailout in a way that was um, good for them. So that experience for me was one of the other reasons I'm running now is that I saw that corruption and it disgusted me. I lasted, uh, my wife and I lasted three years. We had planned on five. We had a son. It was a perfect breaking point to move out here and uh, to my wife's homeland um, and, um, and start our life and um, work in um, you know, the nonprofit field. In fact, I did half of my work for free um, throughout uh, uh, my time as a business owner uh, because our school paid back our loans through a public interest loan repayment assistance program, which I think everybody should have the opportunity to have, not just people who are privileged enough to go to Stanford. Uh, My wife's a victim's rights attorney, um, and we loved love our jobs. I've quit to run for Congress, of course. Uh, I love doing this. Um, but that experience really did galvanize me. It showed me that what was fundamentally wrong with this country. And a lot of us do. A lot of lawyers do go into uh, corporate law afterwards because it's the easy, it's the low-hanging fruit. I believe me, I get that. And I think in the one of the pitfalls of the progressive movement, as much as I love what we're doing, is we get too wrapped up in this concept of purity that we forget that you know people got to eat. Like I do tax consulting for uh, private corporations and it feels miserable, but I got to eat. I got a roof over my head. I spent a lot of my life not realizing because my parents kept it for me that my dad actually used to be a consultant for Booz Allen. And if you know what they do, they're a military industrial contractor. And I didn't know that until about three months ago, something like that. Yeah, I didn't know what they did for about till about three months ago. And I love the delicious irony of being a vocal and adamant anti-war activist in the face of that. But I mean, we forget that like we have to work these jobs to survive. And when you have something like this crushing student loan debt, like $360,000 is a 
pardon my language, shit ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> it's all gone now. <laughs> it's, thank God. But like this, because we have the system that's set up and we have a for-profit education system that's set up in such a way that you have to take your talent and give it to people like AIG and Goldman Sachs. You have to you have to take those jobs. It's not necessarily the thing you got into law to do. You weren't like, I want to be a corporate lawyer when I grow up. That's not what you wanted to do. You're like, I'm going to find a way to keep bankers from, you know, getting screwed over for their crimes. I wanted um, to fight civil rights cases in the Supreme Court, but you know, only like five people get to do that. Yes, so. <laughs> it's not common. Like it's Thurgood Marshall gets to do that. Like yeah. that's it. But yeah. I mean, it's, it's people don't, they, we, we lose sight of the fact that like, just because you are working for a corporation, just because you take a corporate job, just because you're doing something for a business, that doesn't mean that you like it. doesn't mean that it brings you joy. It doesn't mean that you don't want to stop the system that enables that kind of thing. And I think we lose that experience, but that's most people's experience. And both of my parents, worked in the pharmaceutical industry because we were in New Jersey and that's what it is. Um, and without that, those jobs, I wouldn't have, I, I couldn't be where I am today. I couldn't. Uh, and it's, it is ironic. It is, like you say, a delicious irony. Um, but when we fundamentally change the system, we won't need to have people making those choices between their soul and, um, and survival. We called it a the false choice. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's exactly it, right? So I'm a manager for a large company, and I, I can't name anything because I'd get fired, yeah. right? And that's, the, the again, the delicious irony of this whole thing is that we are forced to compromise our morality just to survive. You know, I, I think when we think about the soldiers who go off to war and have to kill other people, many of them wouldn't ever dream of killing somebody before they went, but they do it anyway because – that's the economic choice they have to make to survive. And I think this is the one part that's really critical for me is when I'm talking to my uh, conservative friends, we talk about the notion of freedom, right? And freedom for me now is the freedom not to be coerced into having to compromise my morality. It's the freedom to be able to choose what's right for my brother, even though even if they're not an American, even if they're not here in this same room for me, it's that freedom. And to me, that's the thing that's most important. It's why we ran Sarah's campaign it's why we put our lives on the line uh, to do so. And uh, I'm really thankful that you're doing that as well. Like, uh, I think it's a really important piece of it. And I appreciate your candor and your honesty when you're answering that question. Uh, Cause I know it's a hard one and I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, and I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to run. Um, this is a once in a lifetime situation and I get to make big impact on people win or lose. It doesn't really matter. It's, about the connection with people, about the idea, getting the idea out there that this country can be a place of hope again. This country can be a place of um, of more happy moments for people than it has been in the past four years for various reasons. <laughs> um, I look forward to what lies ahead for me and for my campaign, and I look forward to what lies ahead for us. I mean, there's so much possibility, and we just need to... We just need to keep going. That's it. And so I want to kind of shift a little bit to talk about we I love talking policy. I love talking shop. But I want to take just a couple minutes to talk about um, the the reality, like demystify the process. Like, so I'm going to start. Nicolette, you're managing a campaign. I'm, I know Jay can answer this question for like 500 years, but you just need to sit quietly. OK, Um what is that like for you to manage this congressional campaign that spans one of the largest congressional districts in America? No pressure. Right. <laughs> it's, it's surreal, but it's really exciting. We've gotten to meet so many amazing people from all corners of our district. And it, it it's so worth the, what, 
12 hour drive <laughs> what it feels like <laughs> but yeah we've we've met so many great people and we've heard so many stories and it, it's uh, you just one place to the next and all of the stories start to overlap and you start to see that narrative of of this area and it's it's unlike anything I've ever been a part of. So with a campaign, I don't think, so a lot of people hear campaign manager, and I think that means a lot of different things. On my campaign, we actually decentralized a lot of the positions. Like, so we had all of these different facets of the campaign manager job. We actually had people to like fill those slots. So we, you were there, but like you kind of just, no one wanted to make choices. So Jay just made choices all day. Um, so what is, what is it like? What does a day campaign managing look like? What does it look like to manage a campaign, whether it's a congressional campaign or just any campaign? What does it look like? We look at the calendar. We we spend days. We we have a very packed calendar because we want to make sure that we're in as many places as we can be, and so we have uh, our volunteers send events, you know, like community events, or if they hear about a meeting that's coming up, they'll send that over and we'll put it on the calendar, and then we will create an itinerary for the day for all of the places that we need to get Peter to, and on the down days, that's when we're we're fundraising and I'm, you know, doing paperwork and the, the strategizing and figuring out what, what we're going to be doing for next week. And so when do you ever, so you mentioned having a, a son, what do you have, what does time look like with family in, with the campaign? Like, what does that look, is it basically you're like, everything is one big thing. It's always campaign. And my kid just lives the campaign with me. <laughs> uh, my, my mom has really stepped in and helped me. Um, we She watches him on Mondays and Wednesdays and she's watching him today so that I can be up here. Uh, and my husband keeps an eye on him on, on the weekends. But it's, well, I have I have him on Tuesdays and Thursdays and then Fridays usually because that's, I usually send you off with another volunteer to go do stuff. <laughs> I spend Fridays with my boy. Um, and yeah, it's it. that's probably been the hardest balancing act. I think that's what people don't realize is a lot of these progressive campaigns and so on Sarah's campaign, we didn't have the money to pay anybody a salary. It wasn't like we just got to work a nine to five and then we went home. It was we had our nine to five jobs and then we did this on the side. And so for me, I was putting in 80 to 90 hours a week, every week during our busy points to just make sure that we could survive. And so people don't realize the work that goes into this kind of thing. And so uh, I know I already thanked you, Peter, but you too as well, Nicola. Like you, it literally is putting uh, your heart and your body and your mind on the line. It's really funny because uh, we had a documentary done about our campaign by NHK, which is a news agency in Japan. A lot of people don't know what it is, but... Uh, we were sitting down with uh, Hide, who was the director for that, and he asks me, he says, Jay, do you think this is worth it? And I said, you know, Hide, I feel like I'm doing, God, I'm choking up. I feel like I'm doing lasting damage to myself, both physically and mentally in this moment, but I know it's worth it because people are suffering. And that's still true. I still feel that way. Like, I would do it again. Yeah. Don't and want I, to. But. I guess- and I think the the question that I want to take from Jay and this is to you as the campaign manager, when you look at everything that you're doing, like, same question. Is it worth it? Oh, it's so worth it. I I feel like I have agency in trying to trying to create what I would like to see the next generation of congress to look like what i want my future congress to represent 
that I get to have that megaphone through Peter in a, in a way to to make sure that everybody is counted, whether you you know were lucky enough to be on Wall Street or you weren't. That everybody that everybody has the ability to be heard and that yeah it is and it's it is kind of overwhelming to try and put all of those the feelings that politics give us that that passion and 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 the the hope and the rage and put that into words but but that's why it's worth it is you get to at the very least experience all of those feelings at once and it's it's an emotional thing and like i've talked a lot about candidate mental health too and so i peter how do you how do you balance it and i'm going to pose the same question like i'm assuming the answer is yes cuz you're still doing it but like is to you is it worth it and what does it look like for you with your family it's worth it but it looks like a lot of days where i'm just not there and i did quit my job to do this cuz i don't think there's any other way with such a massive district and fighting two machines um I do miss my family, and I miss my son. Um, I know that, and my wife knows, that we're doing something bigger than us. We have this life that has sort of been upended, and I knew it was going to happen. We all knew. But in the end, at the end of the day, we do do this to make our country better, because our country, for its faults, it gave us these opportunities. And why shouldn't everybody else have these opportunities that we that that we had? And why shouldn't everybody else have them without having to mortgage their lives, without having to scrape and struggle? Yeah, we work hard, but we shouldn't have to be worried about our survival every day. And so, you know, it is worth it. That's why it's worth it. Um, and if you talk about just kind of mundane things, I bike. I bike every other day. That's pretty much how I maintain my sanity. Um, yep. <laughs> I went for runs. Something about yeah. like fleeing from nothing yeah. really like is just liberating. Yep. As fast as you can, right? <laughs> yep. I do it at around like one or two in the morning when there's nobody around. Mm -hmm. I did it in the middle of winter at like, I don't know, seven or eight at night when there's absolutely no one around. I'm yep. like, I could get mauled by a bear. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> So before the campaign started, Sarah and I, we were standing out on her deck and we talked about uh, whether or not it was the right thing to do. And I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I want to share with you this story, which is uh, we knew that for us, victory wasn't winning the race. Uh, victory was changing the conversation, changing the perspective of it. And I'm really happy to see more people getting up in the race and standing up and saying, uh, there's corruption. People are suffering and people are dying as a result. People shouldn't have to choose between insulin brands because they can't afford it. That's a, it's a tragedy. And so uh, I'm going to share with you all a verse that from the Bible, because I'm a Christian, um, that I really enjoyed. And uh, I look to this every single time. And I hope it means something for you all too. Uh, it's Hebrews 12.1. All right. I'm going to read it for you all. And I, I hope it, it serves as a thing of encouragement for you guys. Uh, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And for me, that was the verse that I looked to every time I showed up, when I woke up, when I was too tired. And so I hope that you can think about that, because it's a long race, and, and uh, the day after the election happens, 
Oh, God, I can't. How do you explain it? I think the day after the election, I t- we turned off all the electronics in the house. And I think we just laid on the sofa and watched Netflix. I actually had to go to the campaign office that day. I got a speeding ticket on the way back. It was <gasps> terrible. <laughs> just literally running from the campaign and the police. So. <laughs> oh, Jay. Thank you for joining. I didn't know you got a speeding ticket. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Back up. What? <laughs> <laughs> you had me tearing up here and then. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. then you saved it. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. Uh, we like to do that. Moments of emotions, then moments of clarity, uh, which is Corn was in the car with me, so it's her fault. Uh, <laughs> so um, I don't, do you have any more questions, sir? I mean, I think that's everything we really, uh, this is all the stuff that matters. Like this is the human part of this. And I think that something we lose in the campaign is like, you forget that we're real people with real lives who are doing, an, we are human beings trying to do a really fucking inhuman thing and it takes pieces of you every single day but it also gives them back it changes their shape and it shoves them back into your psyche it shoves them back into your soul but it it is it changes you forever and so i just want to say to both of you this is an undertaking and for you guys to step out of your regular normal lives and take this on this is this is a lot so i want to say thank you for being regular people with regular lives who are human beings doing an inhuman thing thank you thank you sarah thank you for having us you drive me crazy